We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you big science from the small island of Tasmania. As always, the show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about what they're up to. Today we are going to be talking about mental health. Some viewers may find this content disturbing, so uh, this is your content warning. We will be talking about body dysmorphia, depression, anxiety and other mental health conditions. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Hannah McCleary and I'd like to begin today's episode with an acknowledgement of the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering today, the Palawa people as we record on Lutruwita. And I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respect to elders past and present. Today we'll be talking about the impact of, I'm sure something we're all familiar with, the COVID-19 pandemic on our mental health and our expert guest is Professor Susan Russell from Swinburne University. So Hannah, can you tell us a little bit more about our guest? Susan is a cognitive neuropsychologist and professor at Swinburne's Centre for Mental Health. She also holds a position at St Vincent's Health. Susan, what sparked your interest in cognitive neuropsychology? When I was a child, I was fascinated with biology and learning and and mostly the brain, actually, and how the brain functions and how we get to perform the complex skills that we we are able to. So, you know, our talking, our thinking, our memory. And I think when I was a child, I was particularly taken by some family members that I knew that had neurological problems, so had dementia. And it really, um, I guess, pushed my interest into studying it more and more as I as I grew. What does a usual day at work look like for you, or is each day, you know, unique? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, there's, there's there's the pre-COVID uh, workday and there's the post-COVID workday. Um, Pre-COVID, um, I, I primarily am a researcher, so I'm trying to further characterize our um, uh, our cognitive systems um, in, in healthy people, but mostly in people with serious mental health um, disorders, so people with schizophrenia, body dysmorphia, bipolar disorder. So these, these groups have um, really quite profound cognitive deficits, so problems with their memory and attention. Um, prior to COVID, we would have a very sort of mixed re- week where we would have um, research sessions on Sundays um, and have um, participants in the lab with some of these conditions. Um, on other days, we would be collecting, uh, analysing our data um, and having meetings about our data um, and also um, applying for further um, funding Um but since COVID, um, uh, we've not been able to do those data collection days, which has caused um, us to have to pause a lot of our research. And some of that's not too bad because it's given us an opportunity to catch up with some of our writing of data and our analysing data. So at the moment, we spend a lot of time on Zoom, uh, on big group meetings, analysing data and thinking about our results. So Susan, are you... Um a practicing psychologist as well as a researcher? Do you have a clinical load as well as, you know, driving research yeah. and trying to fundamentally understand things? So, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I, I less and less over the years um, and, and really use the clinical work that we, that we do within the unit um, to feed into our research. So 
With um, Professor um, Neil Thomas, we've been running a voices clinic for over 10 years now. So this is for people with um, profound uh, auditory hallucinations, that they're, they're persistent and, and, and they, they know, don't remit with standard sort of interventions. And we help them with our new interventions that are, are being researched through, through the, the research that we do. Um, I also do some work in, um, as I referred to, in people with body image disorders and see, see them occasionally. It, it's one of those things where I think over the years, because the research has really um, taken a grip on me and I, I find trying to find novel solutions for these people that really have quite profound impact in their everyday life, um, that's why I've sort of moved towards that rather than the clinical work. Uh, throughout your career, has there been a particular highlight of your work or study um, that has sort of stuck with you? When I arrived in uh, Melbourne uh, about 15 years ago now, um, I was introduced to body dysmorphia. So this is the, a disorder where people look in the mirror and think they're profoundly ugly uh, or dis disfigured or disformed, um, despite everyone telling them that there's nothing wrong with their, with, with their appearance. And I started to do um, some really quite significant research in body dysmorphia over, over that time I've been in Melbourne. And two years ago, uh, Catalyst, the ABC uh, documentary show, got in touch with us and filmed a whole documentary on BDD, um, particularly surrounding our research and, and, and the things that we were uncovering in Melbourne. And one of the aspects of that is that they brought someone on the show that had body dysmorphia and took them through the work that we were doing in our lab. Um, and, and not only did it have a profound effect with me on the day in terms of her experience and how relieved the participant was that there were actually some people really trying to understand her condition and, and improve the interventions. But after the show aired on ABC, the absolute profound impact it made in the general public um, and the large number of emails that we got supporting our research and asking us to, to try and roll things out quicker, which unfortunately we can't. So, so in some ways, it was good that we, we were being recognized for doing um, really internationally significant research. And in other ways, it has made us a little sad that, um, that uh, we're, we're not able to do things quick enough to help people. Although we're trying. That sounds really rewarding, Susan. I wonder if mm -hmm. you could talk a little bit about the challenge of researching but also treating something that is inherently invisible and of the mind. You know, you can't see uh, uh, the ailment, for lack of a better word. You can't see the experience of the participant that you're interacting with or the patient that you're interacting with. So how do you even start to unpack that? I think um, the, the, power, the power of talking to people and the power of empathy, um, but especially talking to people, I, I think um, I, I come from uh, the UK and training in the UK when I was going through it, you know, it was very much about understanding people's background, understanding people's current experiences and really speaking to them at great length about how these past and present experiences were um, impacting on the mind. Um, not, not only that, I mean, I, 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 as you already referred to, I am a cognitive neuropsychologist, so I do have tools in my, I, I guess, my work box as well. So it's, it's not just clinical interviews. Um, we do a lot of cognitive testing. So these are tests 
where we we we, we um, know how typical people in the general population would perform on memory or attention tests. Um, we do a lot of work with eye tracking, um, which is very revealing for how the brain is working. Our eyes tell us a lot about ourselves. And also, um, we, we do brain imaging as well. So we, we, we've got an MRI and an MEG at Swinburne that we use to really try and characterise these complex disorders. How do you physically intervene on something that's a dysmorphic condition? Like if, it, if I'm seeing something that you're not seeing because I'm mm-hmm. imposing that on myself um, mm-hmm. and it's not really there. How do you physically intervene and change my perception of that? I'll give you a great example. One of my one of my postdocs came up with this example a couple of years ago. So if you have a pimple on your face and you go and look at that in the mirror and, you, and, and, and as a healthy person, you can go and do this and just stare at it for an extremely long time, okay? So maybe 10, 15 minutes, just stare at that pimple in the mirror. Move away from the mirror then, you know, at a normal speed. And what happens is it, your face does become distorted because what you've done is you've become very fine-grained and are focusing on a singular aspect. What we think is happening and what we've got data to show is happening is people with BDD have more of a tendency to focus on fine grain, smaller details in their environment, and they're not able to alter the way that their visual system works very quickly to look at the global aspects of vision. And we do that accommodation really all the time. We do it all the time in our everyday world. We go from looking at small things to big things, small things to big things. But people with BDD have a problem with that accommodation, and that's why they get stuck. That's a really good way to frame it. Thanks so much, Susan. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay with us. And in just a moment, we'll be talking more to Susan about her recent work on the effect of COVID-19 on our mental health. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about Professor Susan Russell's work in neuropsychology. We're about to talk about her recent work during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm joined by my co-host, Hannah McCleary. I'm Neve Chapman, and I hope you enjoyed our first part, but Hannah, uh, kick us off with what we're talking about in this segment. Great. So I'm sure we can all sort of guess the answer to this question, but Susan, um, with your work last year about uh, our mental health and how um, it's been affected by COVID-19, did you actually you know, find a sort of uh, definite change in our mental health because of the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So um, just to very give you a very brief set and sentence why we started. So as I was talking about in the first segment, I'm interested in cognition. So I'm interested in things like memory and attention um, and, and, and people that have trouble with memory and attention. Now, one of the things that we've known for over 50 years is as soon as we're anxious or depressed or stressed, it has a massive impact on our memory and attention uh, stress. So for someone that's working on that, it seemed to be really obvious to me that the general public were not only going to have problems with their mental health, but that it was going to have some flow-on effects of cognition. So that's why we started the study, because I needed to be able to monitor that as someone that's interested in cognition. 
So we started the big survey that we launched in April last year and we um, uh, collated data across the whole of Australia once a month. Uh, for 72 hours. So on the 1st, we launched our survey and then closed it again on the 4th and had these piles of data that we've been looking at for now 10 months. And yes, uh, the mental health in Australia has really been impacted by COVID. Um, so in the first month, we found that in the general population, our anxiety, stress and depression had risen three times to what it would be in a typical year. Um, and that has continued um, throughout the last nine, um, nine or ten months. Uh, and in Melbourne, um, during the second lockdown, it actually rose um, to about four times what it would be in a typical year. So, Susan, what kind of um, – so did you do this mostly through survey? And have you been able to actually, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, objectively verify these increases um, over time. So when we deliver a survey, people self-report, how do we kind of ensure the integrity of our self-report data and have you been able to kind of get some objective measures as well in people? Yeah, I, I mean, this is this is one of this has been one of the problems with research over the last year. You know, we've we've been really um, hands tied that we've only got survey data. But I think the thing that we've been able to do, which does objectify it, is we we know that there are increases of um, uh, people wanting to see mental health professionals reporting increased anxiety and stress. We have seen an increase in inpatient admissions with people with severe anxiety and stress. We've seen globally the same pattern of findings. So, yeah, we've always got bias in survey data and, and that's, you know, we just have to deal with that. But the actual ramifications of that throughout the um, public health system have been sort of played out with what we're finding. That's really interesting. So some of our listeners who are really keen might remember that right at the start of the pandemic, we spoke to Dr. Kimberly Norris, who... Um, specializes in mental health for social isolation and how our mental health changes and she talked about something that you've touched on where you saw a difference in your Melbourne data that um, the more prolonged the exposure to isolation essentially the worse the outcome is for the impact on your mental health so you're more likely to have greater Mm. levels of anxiety or depression so have you seen any other differences um Either in Australia where we've had you know multiple something I've been wondering lately is like you know we've had multiple pockets pop up and then that kind Mm. of leads us a Mm. festering state of anxiety because you're wondering when's the next one going to come um so have you Mm. seen any other geographical differences um depending on like the way COVID is playing out across Australia Uh, I think we're still 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 looking at that I think one of the things that was interesting at the first in the first sort of few months is um Victoria and New South Wales were pretty much um similar um, we've seen some um, data from Northern Territory where everyone seems to be um, getting back to normal up there a lot quicker than they, they have in the rest of Australia. But to be honest, I'm still looking at it. Um, it's, it's not one of those things that you do um, just with a click of a button. It's quite, it's, there's a lot of intense data to look through. And do you know if anybody has drawn comparisons between like countries such as Australia and New Zealand where things have been handled relatively easily compared to countries mm. such as the UK or the United States where they seem to be living with COVID um, mm-hmm. and do you know if that work like are there any international collaborations that you're familiar with where that data will be shared and compared? Yeah so there, 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 are, there are several um, large-scale 
uh, data repositories um, where uh, and, and uh, the collate survey that we've been running is part of one of those, them that's uh, been funded by the Wellcome Trust. So I think sometime mid this year there will be um, some international comparison work. Um, it has it hasn't happened yet. I know there was I think um, uh, some data that came out recently comparing. Uh, America with um, Canada and perhaps Mexico, but they're all, you know, within the same continent and got similar experiences, but not these really big cross international um, comparisons where we've got very different experiences here. But anecdotally, I, I think um, uh, I, I've got a lot of colleagues in, in, in Europe and uh, they think that Europe will be doing a lot worse long term because of the, 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 the way that the, the Europeans have handled the crisis and they're very impressed with the way that the Australians have and they think our um, mental health services long term will be better off for it. But anyway, I don't know. Let's see. To be slightly facetious, is there, how do we know if the pandemic has contributed to a decline in mental health compared to mm -hmm. whether or not, because um, I mean, there's a whole bunch we could attribute to the pandemic, such as a disruption in work and disruption in routine, which is, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll keep that in the pandemic pile. But how much of it could be a disruption to mental health services as they were previously running? So we're kind of seeing an exacerbation on pre-existing conditions. Are we able to delineate those two things, like people who had no mental health conditions pre-pandemic versus those that maybe deteriorated very quickly due to a lack of access to services? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that we're going to have to, um, that's one of the things we're going to have to keep an eye on. Um, I, I think we, if you take my data um, that we've collected thus far as what's going to happen, then one of the things that we were suggesting that's going to happen is an extra 20% of the population would have levels of psychopathology, so mental health symptoms that would be severe enough to need some kind of intervention. And given our mental health services are already at capacity, 20% extra of the general population is a massive number. Um, so I think that that's where, you know, we'll start to see if that number of people do need long-term um, treatment um, where the, the, the systems are going to fall apart. And, and I guess the, the important uh, longitudinal data that we, we, we've already got is in previous pandemics, so there's been a couple of pandemics um, in, in uh, Asia uh, where they've had, you know, large outbreak, breaks of flu. Well, uh, and, and uh, you know, um, lock-ins and sort of similar to the COVID pandemic, but not on the same scale. But at least we can look at some of the mental health data in those previous pandemics. And one of the things that we know is it's about 12 months after the pandemic is officially over that we do start to see these increases in um, a mental health service provision needed. Thanks so much, Susan, for telling us about your work during the pandemic. It sounds like it's really important and will inform a lot about how we respond in the years to come. Listeners, stick with us for part three as we delve more into Susan's work and what this means moving forward. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we're talking about the mental health impact of COVID-19 has had on society as a whole. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined with my co-host Hannah McCleary and our expert guest, Professor Susan Russell from Swinburne University. So Hannah, take us away with what we're going to be talking about in this segment. 
Susan, how do you think that understanding these um, emerging differences and patterns um, in our mental health, um, you know, because of the pandemic, actually help us in addressing the issues to ensure, um, you know, the well-being of our community? My, it, it's, it's been an interesting journey for me over the last year because this kind of research that I'm talking to you about now isn't isn't why I started working in psychology. This this, this is just something that's actually arisen and and been pushed across my desk, so to speak, because um, I I'm very well aware that um, these kinds of mental health conditions are going to be um, one on the rise, but also the, the symptoms that I'm talking about do affect our cognition. And that's what I'm really interested in. So how long term do these, how, how much of this long term does this affect our cognition? We know it affects our memory. There's been loads of um, previous psychological experiments showing severe stress affects our memory for many years afterwards. So for, for me, it's about, you know, making sure I understand all the bits of my jigsaw when I'm trying to do, return to what I would do in my everyday um, kind of research and making sure that we've got enough information about the pandemic that we can account for that moving forward in whatever clinical trial or whatever kind of cognitive intervention I'm trying to um, um, work out whether it's effective or not. I, but I also think um, I'm very proud of the work that we did because the public health system can use these data as well to um, inform them of patterns and, 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 you know, making sure that we've got good national data is critical to them. I think you've touched on something really interesting there, Susan, that, you know, with a 20% increase in those that have uh, mental health problems or conditions that push them to the point of needing intervention. It's a huge increase and it causes, uh, it raises some interesting questions for our public health system. And mm-hmm. would you be willing to uh, postulate whether or not we will see a, a change in the way mental health is prioritised within a public health system, but even by employers, by society as a response to the pandemic? You know, every time there's a huge disruption, some positives come out of it. Is that potentially one area where we may see improvements post-pandemic? I'd hope so. But I, I think I think one of the things that it is going to do, and, and it's slightly, um, it's not quite answering your question, but it is un- addressing this increase in mental health symptoms in the general community, is I, I think there is going to be more public awareness about mental health symptoms. I think there's going to be more sort of um, psychoeducation and um, portals and websites and apps to actually help yourself um, with your mental health and help monitor your mental health and help with sort of more kind of um, self-administered interventions that you can you can monitor yourself. Um, and I think the other thing that's happened is uh, the real um, uh, importance of telehealth um, and making sure that that is available for everybody and making sure that um, that we even reach the rural communities that perhaps previously we didn't. So I think there's some things that I think have been moved some research forward really quickly because um, there was there was already a reasonable amount of research about self-help and, and, and apps you could do yourself and also the telehealth. I think that that's really elevated that. 
about um, public health systems, I don't know. I, I don't work there. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> uh, now to wrap up, Susan, um, I know this might be a difficult question because, you know, obviously everyone's unique, but do you have any tips for our listeners um, for managing their mental health during this sort of difficult and, you know, unstable sort of time? Yeah, I do. And and actually, I've, got, I've been asked to think about this more and more and more over the last few months. And, 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 I, and I did um, write together a, a, a little bit of a blog, and you can find it on the Swinburne website, about helping manage you, your mental health. Make sure that you know what you can control and what you can't. We can control our everyday environment. We can control our house. We can control who we see. Um, but we're not going to be able to control, you know, what government guidelines are being put in place or, you know, some bigger picture things. Make sure that you really focus your energies on what you can control and obviously abide by the regulations that are being put out there, but don't let them worry you too much. Just live every day with an, an acknowledgement that, that, that some sometimes in this current pandemic, there are going to be things that you can't control and that's okay. Um, make sure that you look after your physical health. We know more and more and more um, nowadays that our physical health has an absolute and really important impact on our mental health. If we eat junk food, it doesn't do us a lot of good long term. So I'm not saying don't treat ourselves every now and again because that's good for us as well. But, you know, make sure that we eat healthily, make sure we have regular sleep, make sure that we have regular exercise, really look after your physical health. Stay in touch with your loved ones and make sure that you have a, a really um, important social group around that you that you know can be a, a support to you if you are having a particularly bad day. So, you know, when we're put in, in situations where we're feeling very overwhelmed and we're feeling very stressed, it just can sometimes seem too much for us. Break those problems down. Break them down into even really, really tiny components and give yourself praise when you do something um, that's problem solving and achieving one of those tiny components. And the fifth one is if you really still think you are um, under um, a lot of stress um, and not coping and your mental health is really causing you distress, please seek help. And the first point of call is always the GP. Thanks so much, Susan. This has been a really fascinating episode and we'll be sure to share that blog with our listeners. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you found any of the content on today's episode distressing, please contact Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or you can contact Beyond Blue or Headspace. If you did enjoy the episode, please do look us up. You can find us on all major social media platforms or wherever you get your podcast. My name is Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host Hannah McCleary and our expert guest, Professor Susan Russell. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.